Hello and welcome to Reflections and Room by Yosu, your host. Today, our topics are markets, game theory, and competitive intelligence. First and foremost, thank you so much for your being here with me and my guests. I know your time is very important, and I'm the guy who will make sure it is invested wisely. Remember, if you're watching this show via Futures Television, the home of the future television, or listen to the show via Radio Futures, the wave of the future on radio, you too can be part of the conversation. Please. Join us in our YouTube channel, and that is IMCI Magazine, where we continue to chat about the topic of the day. So let's get going. My guest today is Noah Healy, uh, so let me say a few words about you know, him before we get started. So Noah is a market designer and a game theorist working on better economic systems. Uh, after training in nuclear engineering, he worked for tech startups and at the peak at the dot-com boom becoming fascinated by my mathematics of information and competition uh, led to patent work and a better commodity market design. His white paper, An Improved Marketplace, describes a new method of price discovery called Coordinated Discovery Markets, or CDM for short. We will talk about CDM today. He's also the founder of CoreDisk, which can be found at www.coredisc.com you find the link to the white paper and to CoreDisc on the description section of this video. Well, without further ado, let's welcome him to the show. How are you doing today, Noah? I'm doing fine, Ram. Uh, thanks for having me here. Oh, thanks for you know being here and for sharing uh, your work. This is this is going to be a lot of fun. So on the first part of our conversation, we'll talk a little bit about game theory and competitive intelligence, and then we will dry, really dive into the CDM, basically your work proper. Uh, so let's get started. So how is game theory relevant uh, to competitive intelligence? Well, game theory is the mathematics of strategy. Uh, and so what it does is it takes uh, a situation and motivations and provides a, a mathematical approach to determine the ideal strategy for the person, the person in that situation with those motives to, to approach that. Uh, so for those familiar with uh, Bayesian thinking, uh, in math, equations sort of go both ways. Um, and in Bayes, we can determine uh, the probability of things that are difficult to measure by relating them to the probabilities of other things that are easier to measure. Using game theory, we can, in one sense, figure out what we should be doing given our motives and what the environment looks like. But another more interesting use of game theory is that if you can identify uh, motives of, of some group or, or person, then you can provide an environment that will uh, essentially give them behaviors that are in their interests and that you can shape by shaping the situation. Uh, and so this allows a situation where we can effectively uh, determine motives, which are an extremely difficult thing because, you know, that's basically mind reading, uh, by creating situations and allowing people to freely engage those situations uh, and by seeing 
what they do, we can see what their motives are and what their what their knowledge is, essentially. Well, that's the fun part, you know, because the difficulty, I mean, the good of behavior economics is we really try to understand, you know, why people do this and why people do that. And I guess, you know, nowadays people really mastered it to a great extent because they say, if you bought this, you will buy that. And they, they leverage this information. So this is really important. Every time you advance knowledge in behavior economics, you know, we're, we're all better off. So uh, in your work, you also talk a little bit about cooperative intelligence, right? So uh, how do you take advantage of corporate intelligence opportunities? Could you explain a little bit what you mean by cooperative intelligence and how? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So uh, competitive intelligence is obviously something that's going to be top of mind for people who are in business and, uh, you know, trying to gain market share. And that's that's obviously important. But strategically, cooperation and competition don't really function the way that uh, society kind of colloquially thinks about these things as operating. Um, effectively, cooperation uh, is, is kind of the base state for productivity. Uh, because if you're trying to gain market share, you're trying to gain greater cooperation with your customer base basically you're trying to cooperate better with the customer base than than the other people are the downside of cooperative systems is uh kind of the free rider problem where people won't really hold their end up and sort of stagnation and groupthink and that's where competition uh which is really about sort of creating losers sort of uh grinding off the edges and getting rid of people that aren't really helping uh, uh, comes in. So some of the most important competitive intelligence you can actually have access to is how to cooperate better, how to coordinate different specialists, different interests together better, because that is what's going to give you a better position in the marketplace. And that's, in fact, what's going to make the marketplace as a whole operate better uh, in in terms of producing raw materials that might be inputs to your business or uh, or complements. That's another uh, big thing where, uh, for example, Microsoft became highly successful because the desktop computer was commoditized and they were selling the retail portion of that that unit so the chip the the monitor the keyboard those were just standard everybody was was pushing them out but then everybody bought microsoft and and put it in there so as as a business um you want to be able to cooperate more effectively with your client base you want to be able to coordinate your internal experts more effectively. And um, you'd also really like it if the businesses that were outside and to the side of your business were commoditized so that your materials, the materials that your customers would use to, to uh, you know, interact with your systems uh, would all be 
cheaper, higher quality, and more available. So there are internal, external, and sort of macro uh, scales at which finding better ways to coordinate and cooperate uh, offer extraordinary advantages to a competitive business. So I think what you're saying is really about value creation, right? The use of cooperative intelligence uh, promotes value creation for, you know, the companies, for the people who engage in it. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's sort of the basics of economic exchange. Uh, you know, if I've got a loaf of bread and you've got $5, uh, um, we can both just sit there. Like, you know, I can also eat a loaf of bread. You could go spend $5 on somebody else, something else. But if you want that loaf of bread more than you want the $5 and I want the $5 more than I want the loaf of bread, then we can both gain from trading with each other. And uh, that is, that's a major source of economic gain. Just a lot of those things happening across the entire uh, economy. Now, I know I'm going to age myself, but, uh, you know, when you said a loaf of bread and $5, I think I remember when it was like 99 cents or something. <laughs> Sadly, I can also remember that. <laughs> now, now I'm going to really scare you because I remember gasoline at 99 cents or a dollar, you know. Ooh, is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had the Mercury Cougar and uh, the thing that drank more than, than what I did I, and, and I was drinking at that time. Uh, but it was 99 cents. But I, I have an uncle who, he, sadly, he's deceased. But he was a he was a gearhead. He was a, a car mechanic his entire life. And oh, I can't remember which which muscle car was was his dream. But he said that back in the in the 60s, he had one of the muscle cars, and that when you when he ran it flat out, you could you could actually see the. <laughs> The, the the gasoline indicator would visibly move when you push the the gas pedal down yeah, at that time i guess we didn't care much about uh, the mileage of things like that you know but that's part of the drama okay so you talk a little bit about uh marketplaces as well right so um how can we therefore use marketplaces to you know measure in intelligence or can we how can we prefer intelligence professionals I gather intelligence from the marketplace in a different way. So markets are basically intelligence machines. Their, their goal is to gather in inputs from people, um, sort of weed out the noise and produce what is or what should be the, the most valuable and viable uh, economic data possible. That is the market price, the price that people are actually willing to make something for or buy something for. Um, so in one sense, you can gain intelligence simply by setting up a marketplace and then or, or watching the ones that already exist. Um, however, there are serious problems with that with our modern technological base. Uh, the amount of information that's now being shoved into our marketplaces is is really straining them beyond their their scale of operation uh and just reading the market data itself isn't isn't particularly uh 
doable anymore. Um, if you get a one standard sort of uh, high level uh, uh, connection to say the CME group, uh, it would take you a day and a half to actually just download the amount of information they produce in one day. So, you know, in two days, you're a day behind. In four days, you're two days behind. You're, you're just you're just constantly not going to be there if you're sort of operating at at that level. And while obviously you could have two and and get ahead of the game a little bit, uh, that's still an enormous volume of of information to try to go through. Much of which is actually just noise, and in which you would like to discard. Uh, and so that's where we get into the thing I was talking about before, where game theory sort of goes in both directions. And and what it allows us to do is describe situations where actual market intelligence is being measured and is being rewarded. And so uh, that's that's how that's how my sort of cluster of ideas works. Um, the negotiation game essentially is based on a coordination game framework, uh, otherwise known as a stagnation game. And the idea is that if you can create a situation where defection, uh, that is sort of going away from the group, is personally punishing, then everyone in the group will basically try to find some some point of agreement that they can all tolerate and then they'll all just stay there um now of course stasis is is death so that's not really what we're interested in so what we need to do is introduce time as a as a factor so the idea isn't to gain stasis around one variable the idea is to gain stasis around how one variable will change over time so we're we're approaching something that we're never quite going to get to and by organizing things around that model the model of say how price evolves over time uh, we can create a scenario where we can measure how much people's beliefs about how price will evolve over time differ from where we eventually all agree to price evolving over time. Um, so uh, to, to kind of put it very simply, at point of sale, uh, you know what the answer was. So one day you set up, everyone comes in and trades at whatever prices are listed, you see how much trading happens, you know what that was. Um, so what you can do is effectively take that as a measurement of how good the price was, how much business got done at this price. That's how good the price was. We then set up a serialized system where we're just going to come in and trade every day at whatever the price is but future days are all negotiable and people can buy their way, buy those future prices towards what they think they'll be. And we'll keep that money in escrow. And 
and then we'll pay people off based on how much of their movement is reflected in where the prices wind up. And so what happens is every day people negotiate the future based on what they think is going to happen. And every day people trade the present based on what is actually happening. And those gaps close down because it's in everybody's interest to see that those gaps close down. And that, that directly measures your information about where the future's headed, which is, of course, that's the, the kind of core, I guess, of, of intelligence is predicting the future, which is something that, you know, it can work out really often. And, and then we have to cope with when it doesn't work out. But I guess that is really what we're trying to do is to create some kind of a anticipation signal that we know or we think we know or we have the best indication of where the market is going, you know, the price of oil. Is it going up? Is it going down? Is, if it's going down, you know, how, how can we take advantage of that? If it's going up, how can we take advantage of that, right? Absolutely. That's and that's, that's, the, that's an issue, in fact, with markets. Um, while markets do a pretty good job generally, um, the the sort of experts in the marketplace and the broader economy has two different interests in how prices should evolve. The broader economy would like prices to evolve very gradually. Um, you know, if if you're a farm and you sell your your crop for a hundred dollars less than you could have. Well, sure, $100 is, is money that you would notice, but eh, that's okay. If you sell it for $100,000 less than you could have, then maybe you're going to lose the farm now. So sharp changes in, in conditions is what, uh, in general, businesses don't want. That it's, it's very difficult to suddenly reorganize uh, or recast your entire system. But existing markets... Uh, maximize returns for sharp changes because they need to react and repair when things go wrong. And so people get very, very high rates of return for being right when things go wrong. So in fact, they would like things to go wrong more often um, because they'd have more opportunities to be right in those situations. Um, what what my model CDM does is turn that on its head and offers people their highest returns for kind of smoothing those edges out and seeing that they don't happen um, by offering them a very high rate of return for sort of day-to-day -day operations. But then when things go wrong, um, it's sort of everybody goes down together. Uh, and and then everybody recovers together as well. I think this is what is interesting about your work and about the white paper proper, is that we, indeed, so folks, you know, we all plan, right? All businesses plan, and uh, we really need things to go according to plan. <laughs> and when they don't, uh, that's where problems really are. But if we can develop any system or any kind of approach that will facilitate or increase our understanding of the markets as as you put it kind of you know uh, avoid those those sharp edges a little bit 
And that is going to improve our competitive position, not just in the present, but in the long run, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and ag- again, it's it's sort of this problem of how do you get more brains working on something? Um, uh, the the value of planning in is frequently that you can get your operational people to take a breath, sit down, think about how things should work or will work or maybe ought to work. Uh, and, and by having, you know, more brains thinking about the problem, you can come up with some new solutions, come up with some different approaches and then see how that, that works out and going forward. Uh, but the standard way of doing those sorts of things, uh, doesn't scale up very well, uh, where you can sort of only get access to brains that are in the room people that are extroverted enough to speak up, stuff like that. And so it's it's difficult uh, in a medium to large organization, you could have hundreds or thousands of people that actually have knowledge locked up in their heads and they're never gonna be in a boardroom. They're never even gonna talk to a VP. And and that, that trap, um, can leave a lot of the knowledge about how your business operates on the table. And so creating these kinds of systems that allows people to make even small nudges uh, creates a situation where a lot more brains are thinking about it. And that that gives you a lot more intelligence about what is and isn't going to be happening. Wonderful. So let's start digging a little bit into the white paper. So folks, uh, the link to the white paper is in the description of this video. I encourage you to go take a look and read it. Uh, so one thing that I noticed uh, um, right off the bat is that people traditionally talk about you know, this piece of information in terms of only two actors, a buyer and a seller. And you took a very different approach. So you thought about not just the buyer and the seller, but you know, more stakeholders or more actors in this marketplace. So you use producer, consumer, speculator, and market proper. Why is that? The You don't use the traditional buy and seller approach. You created something new. Well, the core thing is going back to that cooperative intelligence. I needed a system that actually had common interests. So while buyers and sellers do have a common interest in a deal coming off, um, they don't necessarily have that common interest. Uh, going back to our loaf of bread, if if you don't if you want the five dollars more than you want the loaf of bread, then we're not actually going to trade because it's not worth it to us to trade because it isn't worth it to you. Um, and and maybe if it was worth it to you, but I wanted $6 for the loaf of bread. Again, we're not going to trade because it's not worth it to me. So uh, we we need a situation where effectively it's in all these people's interests to keep things moving. And that's where adding in uh, new roles became important. Uh, and so my insight was that the buyer and seller, sure, one person's bringing goods, the other person's bringing money, 
but both people are bringing intelligence. Both people are bringing information to the deal to make the deal happen. And so what if we abstracted that out? What if we took the intelligence part out and made the goods and the money two pieces and then the information about what a good deal is a third piece and then the coordination and and sort of refereeing of this whole thing to keep it fair a fourth piece and by creating that system what we do is take advantage of this of this specialization essentially uh and so that's that's a that's a sort of a good general rule of of system creation is that specialization is easier to deal with than generalities um, so if you can break your system into specialized pieces they become easier to reason about and and put together the way that would be more effective and also they can be more effective as a specialist because you can build tools machines and other things to help them do what they do uh, so by breaking the system into those four parts we can effectively create a scenario where the the speculators who currently have kind of an oppositional role to buyers and sellers in the existing market because they want to buy from the sellers for as cheaply as possible and then they want to go sell to the buyers for as much as they can um, this creates a situation where they're actually trying to get the producers and consumers to engage in the most economic activity that they can because their success is being measured by that market that i was talking about earlier so the more business that gets done the better they look, the more money they're getting paid, the higher their returns are. And so that creates this system that's now a coordination game. Now everybody's on the side of increasing total market activity. Uh, and when when people make mistakes, that is that's that fault basically uh uh, drags down everyone and now again talking about sort of the many brains everyone sees when market failures are starting to happen and can see what directions things need to move in to get things back on track and everybody wants to jump in and get the market back to where it's going so the kind of bubble crash or you know crash bounce model that we see out of existing markets in many cases uh basically goes away because in the early phases of those things people can kind of see the rails you know starting to wobble and they'll get out in front and start nailing those things in because they want they want the track to stay steady and moving forward they want a more stable market than not exactly that's that's how everybody's getting paid okay so um so you did talk a little bit about the coordination games but you also talk about negotiation games can you explain what are those so negotiation game is is my own neologism um it's my observation that if you have a coordination game situation and a, and again a coordination game is just any situation where 
one person deviating from group consensus harms that person. And my, my standard example is what side of the street do you drive on? That's the, that's a coordination game. Uh, you know, billions of people play every day. Uh, what the negotiation game is, is an observation that uh, in different coordination games, it there isn't necessarily one right answer. Different people can have different interests that are still coordinated. So if you're a British person that's moved to America, maybe you would prefer if people started driving on the other side of the street because you're used to that. But you're one person, everyone else is used to driving the other side of the street, you're not really going to get your way. So you go, you know, you're not going to just start driving on on the other side of the street yourself. That'd be suicidal. Um, but you'd still prefer it. And if, you know, there was some sort of mass exodus of, of Japanese and British, and I don't know all the other places that drive on that side of the street but if if they all came to to you know some state in the u.s maybe it would be in their interest to to you know flip the highways and switch things over and make it so that people drove the way they were used to um so what a negotiation game is is that given this underlying coordination strategic situation there's a way to extract a computer program that will kind of sit on top of that game as an extra player. In my model, that's what the operator's job is to administer this computer program. And that computer program will allow those people to figure out which of those conditions is actually the one that's in the general interest. So if, for example, this British person that moved over was actually a trillionaire and was willing to sort of make everybody thousands of dollars richer every year so that he wouldn't have to switch the side of the street he was used to driving on. Maybe that would be worth it to him and to us. And a negotiation game would allow him to effectively pay to get popular sentiment behind the way things he wanted things to be. Uh, and so this, this approach of negotiation games is uh, a way to work out the properties of and then the sort of spec for coding up a computer program that will be capable of allowing uh, people that are in one of these sort of static games to turn it into a dynamic game that allows them to move towards whatever is going to be best for for the group okay so you also explained that you know it's not infallible so what are the limits or the limitations of negotiation games where 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 does it stop well yeah there's there's uh there's a few big ones that probably the the first and most important thing is that predicting the future is, is simply impossible um, so while negotiation games in, in sort of market setting can give you a lot of advantages, uh, over existing market structures, uh, it can't eliminate madness completely. People will, people will make mistakes. Uh, even many, many people will make mistakes 
And so there will be, you know, some surges and some other things. It will soften those blows, but it, it doesn't, it's not a magic trick. Um, the, the second uh, issue is that it really does rely on this cooperative paradigm. So if you're in a purely competitive space, some kind of zero sum situation, um, it doesn't really help you out with that because uh, if, if it's life or death, uh, then, then sort of it doesn't matter how much, how much money you're paying people to die. They, they might not be willing to do it under any circumstances. So uh, things like uh, political issues, uh, which, which tend to be at core competitive, uh, will still need to be approached using more traditional tools. Um, uh, the entire world can't be just like utopian out for negotiation games. And then the third issue is has to do with the mathematics of setting up the negotiation game in the first place, where in order to find the the structure of this computer program and the structure of this this thing that you can actually have everybody work towards, you need to make sure that you haven't created any situations where free riders or political cooperation or some other thing could allow ganging up on on the minority and sort of forcing them to come along with something they they shouldn't really want to agree with uh and that issue actually makes it super exponentially difficult the more roles that you have within a system so one might think, oh, negotiation games, societies are about cooperating. We could create a societal level negotiation game and, you know, get everything to be kumbaya and happy. Well, okay. Even if, even if competition wasn't an intrinsic part of, of many interactions, um, the, the number of roles that you'd have engaged would be you know, for small countries, tens of millions of people, for large countries, billions of people. And every one of those would introduce complexities of an exponential character. Uh, so a negotiation game that, that fully recognizes the complete individuality of the eight-ish billion people uh, would be more than a Google times harder to construct. Uh, than the CDM that that I've already managed to work out. So uh, adding roles and interests to negotiation games is something that needs to be done very judiciously because um, the, the computations for how to create these programs become incredibly complicated very, very quickly. Uh, and so that it could not be worth your time and effort to to uh, figure out what a proper 20 role negotiation game is, for example. Um, but as, as CDM demonstrates, there's a lot of utility to be had uh, just in, in a handful of roles. 
So how does the model basically deals with market imperfections? So, and we have several. So let's say uh, those wealthy people that you mentioned get together as they did in, in Reddit and start to create, you know, rumors to drive stock prices one way or another, or, you know, uh, basically to manipulate or create, you know, fake news to manipulate the market one way or another. Is there, how would your market deal with that? the manipulation aspect of it? Well, the key is that manipulation will always be suppressing actual trade. So in a situation where, say, people start a bunch of rumors about uh, the wheat market and and that causes farmers to want to hold on to their wheat for later when it's going to be worth more, um, the result of that is that the total amount that will be traded through the wheat market is less than it could have been um, because as they're holding on to it, some of it will decay. And, and if the rumor isn't true, the value won't actually be there in the future. And so the total value of the marketplace over time will actually be, will actually decline as a result of those rumors. Um, and the value of the marketplace over time is the the feeder for where the value proposition is for people doing trading or speculating so if you're a speculator and you start a rumor that suppresses the total value that gets traded in the marketplace what you're doing is you're cutting your own paycheck um, mm -hmm. because what you're doing is you're reducing the number of deals that are going to happen and you're your returns come from deals happening. Uh, so any kind of falsehood, any kind of scam, any kind of mistake uh, leads to less value than could have been created. And so while we cannot eliminate mistakes, um, other people hopefully won't be making the same kind of mistakes that we are making. And so they're, you know, they can cover us when we're wrong and we can cover them when they're wrong. Uh, I think what is interesting is you're trying to show them it's not in their interest to make the quote mistake, right? Right. Yes. Well, and yeah, going back to the previous question, that's why, that's why there's a, a separate role for that in, in the existing two role system. If you're the middleman, it is in your interest for people to, to be deceived about things. If you, if you suppress information to farmers so that they sell you less for less money and then manipulate the buyers later so they buy less from you for more money, well, you've just broadened the spread. You've made more money by doing that. Now, you have at the same time cost the entire marketplace opportunity. If the spread was narrower, more activity could have happened. The farmers could have made more money. The, the factory owners could have actually made more money as well. Even though they'd be buying at higher prices, they'd still be buying at economically viable prices, and they'd be able to do more business and, and make greater profits as a result of that. But your interests and their interests are opposed to one another. And, and, you know, they're, they're thinking people too, they you know, you can't get it all your own way, but by separating that out, um, 
and allowing the farmers, the factory owners, and other speculators to all commonly participate in this speculative market whose goal is to maximize the value of the market for the farmers and the factory owners, um, we arrive at a completely different scenario where now intentionally bringing in false information is, is directly counter to your own interests. So we have one question here from the audience, and it's about, I think, um, achieving a social goal, per se. Uh, so, Basir, hi, Basir, thank you so much for your question. So, greetings, uh, starting from the pandemic up until today. You know, food supply chain created several shocks and bubbles to the detriment of consumers, right? Uh, could one say game theory and this ultra profit maximization has been taking place? How can we ensure food security from a game theory perspective? So, how would your system operate to, you know, deliver a social good, basically. How can your system help us achieve a more stable or food security or more stable uh, supply chain? Uh, well, so the existing markets are, are to some extent doing ultra profit maximization, but what they're doing is individual profit maximization. Um, and so uh, things like the pandemic and the supply chain disruption caused the existing markets to go a little crazy. Um, there was a period uh, in the early days, for example, where the oil market in the U.S. actually went negative um, because the people had stopped driving because they'd been sent home from work and and they couldn't go out anywhere. And so what happened was the bunkers that that held hold the oil were all full and more oil tankers were on the way. And so people were going to have to buy that oil because they had contracts that said so. Um, but the place that they would store that oil was full. And so they were going to have to buy new oil storage in order to fulfill their contract to buy the oil. And so they were effectively selling the oil for negative money um, to people who were just willing to take it. If you had some empty space, they'd give you money to take the oil and put it in that empty space. Um, those sorts of situations are, are obviously very extreme, but again, the market doesn't react to them particularly well because there are people making a lot of money from those sharp spikes. And so what the market does is it overshoots. Um, the oil goes negative and then it rebounds um, because obviously a market can't exist very long with negative prices. Um, and so what you get is a jagged shock back and forth, uh, which is a lot of what we saw in the pandemic and in the supply chain. And that's caused a lot of businesses to fail because whipsawing shocks are very difficult for them to do deal with. So something like the pandemic would be a shock to any marketplace and uh, a CDM type system would would also collapse in the face of those types of, of scenarios. The difference is that because they're making money by pulling things together, by holding it, it together, the, the sort of downstream shocks and waves uh, get diminished very rapidly because if, if you can sort of see spikes going back and forth, you can see that 
it doesn't really make sense a few months down the line for Tuesday to be great and Wednesday to be crappy and Thursday to be great and Friday to be crappy. Sort of all of them should just sort of be normal instead of that. Uh, and so people can see those kinds of things coming and plan and negotiate their way to a, a, a smoother future. So just to illustrate the shock and, and Brazil offered, you know, a follow up comment on on this one, you know, um, hospitality supplies for food and cleaning decline as much as two thirds. Right. And I think that that's what we really saw. For example, I think the can of uh, um, YPs was like a dollar or something. Then it became like ten dollars and people probably would have paid 50 bucks for it. But then it came down to <laughs> the price where we thought it should be anyway. But those those whiplashes uh, are really nauseous to the entire system and perhaps uh, uh, yeah yeah and that's that's one of the things that leads to sort of our downstream supply chain issue so uh, for example in that that note prices drop by two-thirds so 66 percent say uh, that's great if you've got the space pick up a bunch but what is that doing to your mm -hmm. supplier um, they're, they're desperation selling basically. Uh, mm -hmm. so that's going to cause suppliers to fail. Those failing suppliers, that, will then, right. They will then not be there six months or a year from now. And that's where we start seeing the long-term supply chain issues. Uh, and if you bought enough during the initial, you know, collapse to be able to bridge, that's fine. But if you didn't, then suddenly you're failing now because you need those supplies to keep operating and they've just, they've just gone away. And, and while cleaning supplies, I think have a pretty decent shelf life, many foodstuffs will, will rot eventually. So there's only so much you can stockpile usefully in, in those, those scenarios. I remember a lot of people in panic, panic buying mode. And so buying, uh, you know, like four or five times what they, they actually consumed and then they throw it away because they actually wouldn't consume. Right? right. Exactly. And so then that becomes, you know, it's a great deal, except you threw half of it away. So it wasn't a great deal. Um, and I've seen people and now, who throw a lot more than half. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and then that impacts your profitability as well. Uh, so, so yeah. Um, Having, having a system which is focused on the long-term viability of, of, the, of the total economy uh, would be a huge advantage over the, the kinds of systems we have now, uh, where the long-term advantage of the full economy is, is effectively an afterthought. Uh, I will share, uh, you know, a, a few of my war stories, I guess. But so I think I, I've seen some traumatic experiences during the pandemic. Uh, the, the supermarket ones were probably the worst. And uh, um, at one point, I had no choice but to go into a Walmart. I said, well, I have to go into the Walmart. Well, if the supermarket is mobbed, imagine what how the Walmart would be. To my wonder and surprise, uh, the Walmart people, and I think to their credit, they had a more stable supply chain, but they would bring crates of stuff without security guards, just Walmart employees. 
and people would go by and pick one piece. So not trying to grab where the supermarkets, people are trying to grab and run away with stuff. In the Walmart, people actually grab one piece of each and walk down. So, you know, if, if, if there is an opportunity, I think cooler heads will prevail. And I, I think that's one of the advantages of your approach. So we, we did talk a little bit about, you know, the what and the who, right? Let's talk a little bit about the how. So how does one go about setting up a coordinated discovery system? Uh, well, you need uh, uh, you need buyers and sellers, basically. Um, so so you need a couple dozen at least each of those. Uh, and what you do is you just uh, create a a web portal or some other publication portal for where the prices are that everybody can get to and see. Uh, and initially seed out as much of it as you want. If you're competing with an existing market, you can use their their price guesses for what the future will look like. Um, if you're not, you can have sort of a straw poll among your initial user base uh, to seed out where prices are going to go. And then uh, you just offer kind of three portals, and people can put on whatever hat they want and go through uh, each of the portals, there's a buyer, there's that speculator, forecaster, negotiator, you know, intelligence portal, and then uh, uh, the the seller. And um, you just, you set up what schedule of trading and delivery makes sense for the product that you're you're managing. And you just do it every day or every week or every five minutes if it's electricity uh, and and just have the thing tick over let people make their contributions see how they do see what they do and then take take the trades that happen take the commissions from those trades and pay off the people that provide the information for those take your share as the operator and just just keep it going every day. So if someone wants to run some kind of experiment, they can contact you and get some help. Absolutely. Um, I am, as you mentioned, pursuing a patent in the United States, but this is open source overseas. And there's some some sort of critical programs that are actually under a Creative Commons license uh, that you can find on GitHub. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy to... Uh, uh, either participate in or just answer questions and, and sort of point to uh, what's available for people that would like to get started. Wonderful. Uh, you know what? Uh, this is this is kind of fun. You know, people, you know, sometimes we do talk about things in an esoteric way, but what I like about Noah's work is that he takes the esoterics and puts it into practice. So this is a practical application. So again, his website is www.coordisc.com or disc.com. And of course, uh, there's a link to the uh, to the page here in the description section of this video. And there's a link to his white paper, which I encourage you to read. It's, it's really amazing. You wouldn't believe, but we've been talking uh, for about an hour now. Yeah, yeah, that, that went by real fast for me. <laughs> When you're having fun, time does fly. You know, uh, you know. Uh, thank you so very much, Noah, for your time here. 
uh, you know, it's and of course, folks, we're really just uh, uh, scratching the surface here. We can certainly continue this conversation, but I'm afraid that's all the time uh, we have for today. So, uh, you know, Noah, thank you so much for your time and uh, for your explanations here. Thank you for having me here. Wonderful, folks. So it's time for me to start uh, saying uh, a few thank yous. Uh, so again, Noah, thank you so much for your being here with me and Basir and the other people who submitted comments here. And by the way, folks, feel free to continue to submit your comments and questions on our YouTube page. Uh, we'll make sure to read and present Noah, you know, any other questions you might have. If you're listening to us via podcast or watching this show as a recording via Futures Television or listening to the show on Radio Futures, you too can be part of the conversation again. Just visit our YouTube channel and leave a comment. Please don't forget to share and like this video. And please do subscribe to the channel. I am counting on you. Again, thank you so much for your presence and participation in the show today. You can always reach out to the magazine or to me, the host, via Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube. Again, thank you so much. And I hope to see you again on another edition of Reflections. <music>